International Version, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision merely be because of an operation on their flesh. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Yeshua HaMashiach, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the Torah with its commands and set forth in the form of ordinances. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to Elohim through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Yeshua HaMashiach himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. How many of you are familiar with this passage of scripture? So I guess there's nothing left to say. <laughs> well, there were a few hands. I should define what familiar means, right? Um, you know, I think many of us are familiar with this passage. <clears throat> this is, you know, commonly referred to this as the, the one new man passage, right? Some of the headings in your Bible might even say that, the one new man. And initially, when I came to my first Messianic congregation about 12 years ago, <clears throat> I wasn't really familiar with these verses. And, but over time, I was shown these verses <clears throat> and told that these passages really represent the messianic vision and the, you know, the picture of Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in the Messiah, together. And simple enough, I think, and at that really very basic level, I, I agree with that picture. I agree that that's the, the picture that's being shown here. But for the last 12 years of my life, since that time, that picture and trying to really hammer out what it looks like practically um, has been quite a struggle for me. Because I, for me, you know, I would regularly hear things from people, other believers I would speak with, and we'd talk, or they'd hear you know, about my background or something, and they would say things such as, um, so when you were Jewish, da-da-da-da-da, and ask some question, <laughs> or they would say, okay, so you used to be Jewish, da-da-da-da-da, or, okay, so you're a believer, so now is the rest of your family, are they, st are they still Jewish? You know? 
And I would get these kind of questions, and, and that's kind of what led to this struggle. What, what is this talking about? This one, you know, are these questions relevant? And, you know, is, is, is that, am I still Jewish kind of thing? And <laughs> it's the same struggle that many other of what I would say the, a lot of the, I don't want to use the word primary, but a lot of other messianic um, groups organizations, groups such as Chosen People Ministries or the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations also struggle with this question and, and struggle with the practicalities of what these, what this passage and passages like this, um, you know, how they should deal with them. I have a little quote here. I wasn't sure I was going to read it. I don't know if, if you're familiar with this book or if this book is even on our table, but this is a book called Your People Shall Be My People, written by a gentleman named Don Finto. Uh, who's a, a pastor in Tennessee. The subtitle is How Israel, the Jews, and the Christian Church Will Come Together in the Last Days. And just a little thing from a chapter that he has so aptly entitled, Jew and Gentile, quote, One New Man. And I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning of this to kind of give you a little picture here. <clears throat> it says, I'm confused. Is Yeshua not a Jewish Messiah? Is this not my own heritage? Shouldn't the church be affirming their Jewish roots rather than requiring me to become more like a non-Jew? Is it wrong for me to want the church to understand? In a home gathering of Jewish and Gentile believers, these questions were voiced by a woman who had recently moved to our city from Jerusalem, or from Israel. She was having difficulty finding her place among the community of believers. He says, I remembered the story of David and Martha Stern, a Jewish couple who are part of a Messianic congregation in Jerusalem. In a conversation with the pastor of a large American church, the pastor spoke of a messianic leader whom he greatly admired. But why does he have to be so Jewish? The pastor exclaimed. To which Martha Stern responded reflexively, why do you have to be so Gentile? <laughs> the church has become a Gentile, Moabitish expression of faith in the Messiah. Still, we consider our churches to be culturally neutral and wonder why Jewish believers would not feel welcome among us not knowing how far removed we are from the family that birthed us. When we read Paul's Ephesian letter and hear him speak, speaking of Jew and Gentile as, quote, one new man, we assume that this one new man will look like regular church with Jewish believers added to the mix. Jewish believers, on the other, other hand, often wonder how the church can be so insensitive. <coughs> Excuse me. So the one new man, who is he? I've got, a, I've got a, a police sketch artist up here. We're going to start describing the one new man. What do we, how do we draw him? We put a yarmulke and a talit on him? Do you think most people in the larger body of Messiah would portray him that way? No. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not advocating that we draw him as a Jew either. But on the other hand, I want to bring about this, this, this question that I believe... And I imagine if we suggested, if we dare suggested that we should or that we could, that that would be met with some opposition. And it would certainly, I think, make the, the larger body of Messiah feel very uneasy about that. Because I do think that the assumption is that the one new man is not Jewish. And moreover, any attempt to retain Jewishness is viewed by a, a large segment of, of the body of Messiah, our brothers and sisters, as us being the ones out there with, you know, tool belts on and hard hats actually constructing this middle wall of partition that Sharon read about. And this is something, this issue, I think, is something that really those of us involved in Messianic Jewish communities face. 
uh, more readily uh, because for others in the body of Messiah, I don't think it's as big of an issue. And these are my opinions. <laughs> but uh, it's really a specific problem for, for us because of verses like this, passages like this, and other places in, in Paul's writings that say things like, oh, there's no longer Jew, there's no longer Greek, and so forth. So I think we're faced with this a little more than normal. No, I think if we attempted to draw him, that we would stay away from some of the more descriptive features or things that could definitively place him, this, this, this new one new man, in some sort of identifiable camp. I think that if we, you know, we would come up with something like, actually, Isaac, this is time for you to put that picture up here. I want to show you a picture. If you can't see it, maybe we'll hit one of the lights back. Maybe, Charles, you can. If it's not dark enough, you can't see. <coughs> I should have given you more of a heads up, sorry. I said Isaac was the key word I was going to use. He's going to put a picture up here in a minute. I think that, uh, yeah, let me just wait this comes up. There is no pressure. I have nothing to say until this picture comes up. Okay, you can maybe hit the light because look, it's warming up. Okay. Can you see that over there, Dr. Delay? We wouldn't draw that. That's just a purple screen. Should have had that up there with the lens cap on, ready to go. Is that a good sign? Hey, look at that. That's the, that's the picture. There we go. Now, does anybody recognize that? Does anyone that knows what that is? Freddie? Freddie? Yeah. <laughs> Several years back, I think it was in 2011, uh, National Geographic had a project called 7 Billion. And basically what they did is they crunched numbers on everyone of the 7 billion people roughly in the world, and they said, what does a typical human look like? There it is. 28-year-old Mandarin-speaking Chinese man. That's, that is the, uh, the face of humanity. Okay? They call it Han Chinese man if you want to Google it. You can hit the lights again there. Now, does this, do you think this, uh, does this help any of you? Does this help us in terms of knowing what a human is all about? If I, hey, it's just human, you know. Someone comes to visit the, the, the world and, you know, for, they say, what's a human, you know? Does that help us much? No, you, you can take it, take it down now, sure, after all that. I don't think so really either. However, I think that's how we typically want to view this one new man in Ephesians 2. Uh, some kind of mixing of everything to come up with some sort of hybrid believer that we all can relate to. And this is it. This is what the one new man is, you know. We can all kind of put that up on a pedestal. But I, you know, I read a bunch this week <coughs> on this section of Ephesians. A bunch meaning I read a lot of different translations, which we'll get into here in a minute. I read some, uh, some uh, study Bibles, a lot of commentaries, articles, different things like that. And there's a lot of debate. There's definitely different camps in terms of what these passages are all speaking about. But I would say that the one that emerges, if you were to you know, pick up 10 different commentaries, the majority of them are going to kind of come up with this one idea that, that this one new man in Ephesians 2, what, what's being spoken of here, 
is that what God is doing is he's taking two groups. He's taking Jews, he's taking Gentiles, and out of those two groups, he's creating a third group called Christians. And that's why this is sometimes thought of the one new man passage. You read this a lot by very, you know, some very credible books, I think, that, that say that's what's going on here. And that's probably, I think, what you would hear at many uh, well-meaning, um, how do I say this, well-meaning, good, Bible-believing, uh, humanity-serving congregations, I think, would, uh, would present that picture as well of what's going on. But I, I have personally have a few hang-ups with accepting that as it's presented. I cut, for a couple reasons. Number one, uh, and, and this, this is one of these topics today, as Chaim would say, when we get through some of these passages, uh, that you know, when he says you could drive a fleet of Mack trucks through, do you know what he means by that when he says it? I mean, it's just so wide, and it's not, it's not a narrow place. You know, it's, it's so wide. There's so many things to talk about. You could drive a lot of trucks through that. But this term Christians, you know, in terms of creating a third-race Christians or Christianity, no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, but bing, bing, third-race Christians, when you study those terms, just on that level, you find out that these were never terms that uh, uh, the disciples or people attributed to themselves. It was terms that were attributed to people that did not know necessarily about their beliefs, and they would attribute it to them, and actually in a very negative way. And uh, there's all kinds of academic and textual things and so forth. But that term really only appears about three times anywhere in the, in the Scripture to begin with. Um, and again, them being derogatory. And moreover, we see other places in Scripture <coughs> where we don't see this evidence of a third race. We see believing Jews still being called Jews. And we see believing Gentiles are still called Gentiles pretty regularly. In fact, just even in, this, uh, even in our passage right here, um, right after what we read in Ephesians 3, chapter 1, Paul's saying, this is the reason that I am a prisoner for Messiah Yeshua for the sake of you Gentiles, who are believers he's speaking to. A little further down, he says uh, in, ver- in verse 6, that he says, that is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body. So he's referring to, to, to Gentiles as believers, but as Gentiles. Romans chapter uh, 11, Paul says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and these are people he had called brothers and sisters earlier, code word for believers in Yeshua, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And, and on and on again we see this. Galatians 2, the same thing, when, when, when Paul confronts Peter about eating with the Gentiles, but they're believers. So anyways, the point is, I cite these examples to show that uh, believers are not some third entity, they're not, but they're commonly referred to as Jews and Gentiles. But beyond semantics, beyond simple you know, semantics, which is not as simple, it's actually a fairly compelling argument when you look at all the, the facts there. And if you're interested in some of those resources, I'd be glad to share some good things to look at there. But I think beyond that, the real issue I have with this, this interpretation that we've had, you know, there were Jews, there were Gentiles, now there's one third race, is really when you look at this passage in its context you, and you read it, if I were just to give it to you and say, what's, what's this talking about? That's not the primary focus. The primary focus of this passage, I don't believe, is Paul talking about how Yeshua's sacrifice created a third race. That's not what this passage is talking about at all. Um, again, the end result of Yeshua's sacrifice on the, on, the, on the cross, as Sharon read, was not one of homogeneity, of creating something new, like, like Frankenstein, you know? Like you put all these parts together and boom, you get a new, a new, a new monster, so to speak. <laughs> um, that's really the kind of the world's plan for unity, isn't it? When we think about unity and we talk about unity, you know, we have all these ways how we're going to do it. We're going to, you know, get 
We're going to have a board of directors that are unified. We'll pull people from different... We have, we have these ideas, these plans for unity here. And for sure, Paul is speaking about unity and about peace here. That's repeated over and over again. Peace, 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 peace. About four times here. Um, and what he's relating here is, is, is God's plan. And so what I'd like to do is, is step back and take another look at this passage, take another a pass at it, and uh, kind of give a summary of, of sort of what's going on so we can see what is being talked about here and, you know, what is this one new man and what, to what extent is, uh, is there something, you know, what, what is being talked about here? So we see how this passage starts off starting in verse 11. Uh, you know, Gentiles were at once in, in, in bad shape, basically. There's some really, uh, um, say graphic, but very hopeless language here in terms of the, the, the position that the Gentiles were in in the beginning of this chapter. Uh, it says a couple things. It says about five things about it, but in general it says they were without hope. And the way it's worded in, in the, the Greek there is really, it's, it's an ongoing state. They are um, having hope not, is what it says. Ongoing, having hope not. That's the position that the Gentiles were in. And they didn't have God. It's actually the, sort of the opposite word of God in the passage. You know, many of us are familiar with theology. That word theology comes from the, the Greek word for God. This is the Greek word for God with a little negative in front of it. So they were not having hope, and they were no God, basically. That's their situation. They were separated. They were apart <coughs> from the Messiah. He spends several verses talking about this. Said, Look, this was a bad situation. You were separate from all the promises. You were separate from the covenants. You were estranged from everything that God was doing in the world. And then he shifts. He says, but now, by way of Yeshua's life and death, it says in his flesh, which I believe is, is his life, his death, his resurrection, the whole, the whole nine yards there, he says, because of that, you Gentiles who were afar, who didn't have God, who didn't have hope, now are brought near. That's the point. That's the big point he's making. And he goes on to say that Yeshua is the peacemaker. He has rendered inoperative the things which have kept barriers between Jews and Gentiles. Now, this is where it gets very, I think, complicated. Sharon, you ended up reading NIV basically, didn't you? Yeah. This was where it gets pretty complicated. And I'm going to try not to complicate it further, but I want to present to you kind of what the different, because most, honestly, most places in Scripture, translations are pretty good. Our English translations are, are pretty good. Uh, and there are a few places that are tricky, and some of those places that are tricky really don't change the meaning of much. But this, I think, is a place where, depending on the translation you read, and depending on how you look at this in the larger context of this passage in Ephesians, and I think here, in a way you look at it in context of larger portions of the Scripture, specifically the New Testament Scriptures, really will change the direction you go with understanding what this passage is about. And I may be preaching to the choir in this room, but I'm still going to preach it anyways. Um, because there's a couple elements here with regard to verses 14 and 15. Okay? There's three kind of main elements. We're talking about a wall. We're talking about, and that word wall there, by the way, is the only place that's used anywhere in the New Testament, that particular word. So people question, what in the world is the wall? And, da, da, da. and then there's hostility. And then there's the law. And I'm sure we're, you know, with its ordinances, we're talking Torah. And what a lot of people maybe not are referencing is other things in addition to the Torah. Okay? So those are the three main things that are being discussed here. So you'll see kind of a couple major ways this is translated. <laughs> Number one is, is the, one, the place where the wall is the hostility itself. And that hostility is removed by way of abolishing the law. Okay? Abolishing the Torah. So, for example, Sharon read the NIV. I'll read another translation, which is the one I have here. Uh, it says, uh, they all start off the same way. He is our peace and his flesh. He's made two into one, basically is what it says. He's broken down the dividing wall, comma, that is 
the hostility between us. Wall equals hostility, period. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances. Okay? So that's kind of translation one. The wall is hostility. And we break down that wall by abolishing the Torah. Okay? The other way that this is, this is looked at with translations like the New King James, the English Standard Version, they look at <coughs> the wall equaling the law. Okay? There's hostility, but there's the wall, which is the law, and that's abolished. And then within that same camp, you got the wall, which isn't really defined, but it's a wall of hostility for sure, and it's removed by abolishing the law. And this is confusing, but if you go to some websites that show you multiple translations, you'll see this. It's pretty evident. Again, not a lot of passages, you'll see big differences like this in the Bible, but some you do, and this is one of them. Now, the problem with these kind of translations, I believe, is that they put the emphasis on the law, the Torah. Okay, And they make that the focus of Yeshua's work, abolishing that law so that there can be no longer a wall and no longer hostility. Okay? But God's intention was to bring peace by way of getting... I'm sorry, God, they're saying God's intention was to bring peace by getting rid of the law. So, in other words, the one new man. So do you have a problem with that, under that, that kind of idea that the law was the wall, the wall's hostility, and we get rid of the hostility between Gentiles and Jews, basically Jews and non-Jews, by abolishing the law. Does that, you think that's what this is about? Just in case you weren't sure, I'm going to continue. I'm going <laughs> to read a few verses. Matthew 5, 17. This is Yeshua's words. <clears throat> Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And this idea of fulfill means to make full, to complete our understanding, to show how it's done, to fill it up with its full meaning, okay? I was, I was thinking this morning about this idea of fulfill, you know, you apply for a job, and, well, you fulfill, you fulfill all the job requirements, so there's no more requirements, because <laughs> you fulfilled them all. So there's no more job requirements because you fulfilled them all. So that doesn't make much sense to me. Matthew 23, 23, Yeshua's woes to the Pharisees, right? 23, 23 says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. So in some respect, there's certainly there's a bigger point Yeshua is trying to get at, but he's certainly not abolishing the law there. In fact, he's supporting even some of the minutia. How many of y'all tithe mint, dill? <laughs> my mint, mint's a weed. It goes crazy. In my, it's amazing. I could, you know, anyways. Romans 3, 31. This is Paul speaking. He says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Romans 7.13. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. And we could go through many translations or many stories about Paul and going to the synagogue and Yeshua going to the synagogue. And again, there's, there's debate about why that is, but I'm trying to you know, enforce this, this idea because I think that our, if we go with a translation of this Ephesians 2, this creates that tension that I mentioned up front sometimes that I think us in the Messianic Jewish community face of, you know, no Jew, no Greek, and, and all these kind of things. And there's one new man, no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, but one third race. <coughs> so I want to read, actually, a complete Jewish Bible translation, not with the hard word in it, but just the rest. So this is, this is how, uh, how David Stern translates. And he's not by himself, by the way. You read, the, I think, the Jerusalem Bible. There's a couple of the Bibles actually translated this way, uh, in, in essence, where they take the wall to not be defined necessarily. We know what the word means, 
but is it the wall surrounding the temple? I believe that's probably the imagery that, that Paul is using here. Some will disagree with that. The one that basically said, on pain of death, Gentiles shall enter here. You know, a physical wall. Um, he doesn't really define the wall, but he basically says that, uh, that, yes, the enmity is not the Torah itself, but that it's occasioned by the Torah, caused by the Torah. There's something in the... In the I'll just read you his translation, and then we can look, look at it a little more deep. But he says... For he himself, this is Yeshua, is our shalom. He has made us both one and has broken down the wall, the mechitza, which divided us, by destroying in his own body the enmity occasioned by the Torah, basically the hostility that the Torah caused with its commands set forth in the form of ordinances. Now, you can research all this. I just want to I'll tell you from, you know, I looked at this a lot this week, and this is a, a you know, the, the Greek is not very, uh, I don't say it's questionable, but it's not so clear-cut. I don't think David's making a case for something that's not supported elsewhere in Scripture like we read. So the wall here is not defined, but per, but, per, um, but the, it's, it's the sin which the Torah stimulated or brought about in people's lives, okay? And I spent some time on here because you know, I think this is very important because, Again, this is a, this is this is a, a place. That, this is kind of where I think people zero in on the passage and say this is all about the one new man. And here it is, right here. When this passage really is talking about peace and harmony and removing removing hostility, and we see other places that hostility is not necessarily the Torah itself, but there are uh, things that, that that can bring about. And simple simple as like um, Jewish superiority. You know, and then the, 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 the jealousy that may cause in the Gentile side. So clearly there are things beyond the Torah itself, these things that the Torah engendered. But I want to stop here for a minute because, again, this is, this is really, when I was looking at, the, looking at this passage this week, I really felt like, okay, it, this passage is talking about peace and it's talking about removal of hostility. So my question is, I'll say it this way first, do I get that way? Do you get that way? What do I mean by that way? Uh, by some of the things you know about, you know, a lot of you were nodding in agreement and about, you know, about the, the law not being done away with and the one new man could look Jewish and all these kind of things. But do we get a messianic chip on our shoulder? <laughs> you can explain. I cleared this with Jorge, this English idiom, chip on the shoulder. You know, do we, are we trying to defend? Are we, are, we, do we, are we angry about people not getting it? Like this quote from Don Finto. Why doesn't, you know, why can't the church understand? How did she say it? How, how come the church uh, can't understand it, right? You know, do I have to become something I'm not? Do we get that way? Do we have it right, you know? Do, you know, because we understand the Jewishness of our faith. Let me ask you this. When you are asked um, about your beliefs, maybe by other believers, uh, you know, or, or why do you go to a Messianic congregation? These kind of questions, when they come in your mind, I want to propose that if the first thing that comes to your mind about how you want to answer that question or why you're here at Yeshua Tzion or why you were drawn to the Messianic Jewish you know, movement, if you will, if the first thoughts and the first words out of your mouth have to do with uh, what's wrong about the community that you came from, perhaps, then I really question why you know, not why. I really question where you are right now in your mind. Now, I, please, I don't say that to be judgmental. I don't mean that at all. I say that as a real challenge because I think that's what's, that's this hostility that's, that is the, the center point of these verses. I don't think it's the focus of these verses, but it is certainly, a, it is certainly an issue. 
that those that there was a, there was a, you know something between Jews and Gentiles that had to be removed. Because ultimately, Yeshua wants to reconcile. He wants to make whole. He wants to make correct both groups, thereby ending hostility. That's the point of this passage. And uh, again, after looking at this passage a bit more in depth, are we prepared to say that the end result of Yeshua's work was the creation of a new entity? And, and I think in a sense, yes. You know, and there, is, there is a sense of that that's true, but what Paul really is hammering on most in this passage is this idea of peace. And it's, a, it's, a, it's the only way, place that he actually talks about it in this way, but you know, we understand this peace between God and humanity. When you read earlier, uh, the verses ahead of this, there's this peace between God and humanity and also peace between, between Jew and Gentile here. There's this, this, double, this double peace. So where does this leave us in our understanding of this passage? Hopefully it doesn't leave us sweating in a ditch somewhere. But uh, number one, I think it's just some, some big, big, big picture items here. Israel is assumed to be in a privileged position, okay? Clearly, Israel's assumed to be in a position. We actually, that song, I was hoping had those lyrics, that was it second from the end. Yeah, I mean, there was good lyrics, you know, in one of those songs there that really explained this, that Israel was assumed to be in a privileged position. Haim spoke about this last week. This is kind of how we started this, this little series, if you will, on vision and so forth. Um, it's not something we can get around. But the point of this passage is not to leave it there. The point of this passage is to say, that, you know what? Now Gentiles share in the privilege. Paul's teaching here is not meant to downplay Jewish distinctives, but to upplay what God's done for the Gentiles. I mean, specifically, he says, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now you have access to the Torah. You have access to the entirety of God's revelation without having to become Jews or without having to submit to the Mosaic Covenant. You know, I thought, it's kind of silly. We think about, you know, if we want to say that God's you know, done with Israel, and we want to say that God's done with Jewish people, it'd be kind of, this passage would be kind of silly, wouldn't it? Hey, you were far away. Guess what? Come now. Uh, but guess what? Sorry, there's nothing here to come to because it's gone now. You know? I think that's kind of silly. And it's kind of counterintuitive. But the point is that Messiah, in Messiah now, Jews and Gentiles are joined into one new being. This passage mentions it, in addition to the word peace, it mentions it over and over again, in his flesh, in him, in him, in him. So, the question of, my, of the message, who is the one new man? The one new man. If I had to define it, because I felt like, you know, I struggle with this passage all week, and I think this is, is difficult in, in some sense, but I probably should try to define it, you know? What, what would you say is the one new man, then, if it's not this third entity? And I'd say that, I would say that the one new man is a spiritual dwelling place for God. It may sound a little bit uh, fuzzy, but you know, I think that's supported by the text here at the end, at verse 22, um, or 21 and 22. It says, In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom, in whom you also are built together spiritually, or, your, it's, or in spirit, into a dwelling place for God. So the one new man, if I were to define it, if I had to define it, it's a spiritual dwelling place for God. Not a third race, not a... Not a the Han Chinese man, 28-year-old Mandarin-speaking average human. But beyond that, beyond these things we, we can observe from the text, uh, I think it's silent. Again, the new being is not, um, I don't believe it's the church, I don't believe it's a third race. I believe the new being is the spiritual reality that Yeshua incorporates Jews and Gentiles into himself. It's mentioned over and over again. 
So what, can we, what are some things we can take away from this, this passage? One thing that, that, that I, I felt uh, is mentioned here right at the outset and is important for us in terms of an application is uh, something that I call uh, God's unchangeables, okay? God's unchangeables. These are things like, you know, I'm only six feet tall. I have to live with that, you know? I can't be any taller, right? My parents were who they were. That was a joke. Uh, sorry for that. That was a joke. You think I'm six feet tall, I know, but, but uh, these are things we can't change. Who our parents are, who, you know, the, the, the family we were born into and so forth. The funny thing, I thought about the, uh, the unchangeable things because we often buck those things, don't we? We try to not be kind of the way we are. Uh, there's a story about, I've got uh, three brother-in-laws on, on Je- from Jessica's side, and they're, uh, actually I have four, but the three that are blood brothers. Um, the youngest one, he didn't like that he was short and pudgy, right? His whole life, and now he's a little taller and pudgy, but he, he was short and pudgy as a kid, and he had two older brothers, poor guy, and so they, you know, they seized on that opportunity and said, Vijay, do you want to be taller? Yeah, I want to be taller. Okay. Grab his legs. And grab his arms. Okay. You can't cry now. Okay. You want, you want to be taller, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Stretch him, you know. Don't cry, Vijay. Okay. And they're stretching poor Vijay, right? Because he wanted to be taller. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't try to not be who we are. Poor Vijay was, he was short and pudgy. Nothing was going to change that. Again, now he's a little taller and taller than me, and he's still pudgy, though. But still, the point is, he's not, you're not going to change that. These are God's unchangeables. 1 Corinthians 17, 24. It's a true story. Isn't it true? Yeah. <laughs> Sad, but true. This guy's got a PhD. He's a pastor in Scotland. He's very, you know, he got stretched as a kid. But it didn't work. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 to 24. (laughs) However that may be, let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned, to which God has called you. This is my rule in all the congregations. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Circumcision is nothing, but uncircumcision is nothing or and uncircumcision is nothing. But obeying the commandments of God is everything. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave of Messiah. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. So again, Ephesians 2 that we're looking at today is is telling us that Jews don't need to try and be, or they don't need to resist who they are. And Gentiles don't need to try and be something that they're not either. But that both groups simply need to embrace who God is and who Yeshua is. Paul's not suggesting that this new man is the uh, termination point for all ethnic identity. Rather, he is suggesting that when it comes to personal salvation, the Jewish people have no advantage over the Gentiles. Because I think that, again, the application for us is not accepting God's unchangeables leads to hostility. It can lead to hostility. Understand that this whole thing, this whole idea here is centered on you serving the Lord too, okay? 
It's not about you know, your purpose or just to feel comfortable about who you are. Again, thinking that you're doing the right thing. You're here and you're, you're, you're part of this, this community or whatever because you're doing the right thing. Ultimately, it's about understanding what God has done. And ultimately, it's about, uh, as a community then, understanding that we don't meet here or we don't simply exist because you know, we have nothing better to do or that we're more spiritual because we're living biblically and we're, we can point to you in, in, in the Bible where the Shabbat, where we're, that's not why we're here. That's not why we're, we're doing this. It goes back to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right before what Sharon said, Sharon read, and Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. And this is the key part here, I think. For we are what he has made us created in Messiah Yeshua to sit here and know that we're doing the right thing. No. He's made us in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So the point is, is that this thing is, sent, this is, this is about, this, this understanding of the one new man and what's happened and, and so forth has to do with us serving the Lord and, how we, and understanding how we can serve the Lord better. So, we're going to take a few minutes here as, as we, before, we, before we close the service. You, most of you know the drill here. We're going to listen to some music. We're going to have an opportunity to, uh, to, to contemplate and to, to reflect a bit and to spend some time with the Lord and to, to pray. And some of us will be available to pray with you. But I want you to, you know, I think, at least for me, I, and I'd encourage you to, to do the same, is to consider and to ask God to show you if maybe there are some places that you have uh, retained a, a chip on your shoulder in some respect or a way in which you are resisting what God has made you, or how he has wired you, and so forth. You're trying to be something you're not, because again, I believe that leads to hostility. And I would ask him to show you that in a way, not just so you can get rid of it, or you can you know, have a better theology, or whatever it is, but so that you can serve him in the way that, that he wants you to serve him. Because doing it with hostility, and doing it with angst, and doing it with a point to prove, uh, doesn't do anyone any good. So let's pray for a moment, and then again, we'll take a few minutes of, uh, of uh, prayer, and then we'll conclude our service. <coughs> Heavenly Father, um, just thank you for the opportunity we've had to meet today and to consider at least what I found to be a, a difficult uh, passage, one that often does divide, because we, you know, the best lies are the ones that have some element of truth in there. And, and there's, there's truth in the fact that we, we don't earn our way to you, Lord, but there's also truth in the fact that we don't sit around and, and do nothing and nothing have nothing to guide us. So I'd pray, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us here to understand the things that might be, uh, the things that we might be resisting or the, the, the way in which we might be resisting our growth in you and resisting our ability to serve you and our ability to get along with one another, thinking that we've got answers that other people don't have, Lord. Help us to realize that, yes, we are one in you, but we are distinctive. And help us to, you know, spiritual truth or spiritually discern, and I ask that you help us to understand uh, about this spiritual dwelling place that you have created for us in, in yourself, how that works and how we are to function in it and how we are to serve you in it, Lord. I just thank you for this and uh, just ask your blessing on the rest of our, on the rest of this Shabbat that you have made for us, Lord. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.